Well, it's my pleasure to, to welcome you all back. It's just terrific to have you all here. As you may know, yesterday was an open day here in the university, so the streets were absolutely full of uh, uh, very young 17-year-olds, um, some of whom will be our future. But it's really great that this event happens so that you can come here and I feel continue to be a part of our present. So welcome. Um, one of the joys of working on emerging infectious diseases is that one can keep a collection of newspaper clippings like this one. Uh, this one comes from Metro, which is that free newspaper. They, uh, well, they used to thrust it into your hand, didn't they, uh, at Paddington? These days you have to pick it up for yourself. And although it has this silly picture and wonderfully silly headline, it actually tells the story of quite a, um, a, a serious event and, and a not uncommon event where people moved into some piece of land that hadn't been occupied by people before and encountered an infectious disease. Here, not a new one. Rabies is not a new infectious disease. But that's a fairly well understood process called enroachment, which is one of the ways uh, that emerging infectious diseases arise. It's not only free newspapers that uh, like to have infectious disease headlines. This one comes from The Independent, and it tells the story you may remember of the parrot that caught bird flu uh, whilst in DEFRA quarantine, which, of course, is not what's supposed to happen in quarantine. Of course, it gave us the joy of a whole week of jokes about dead parrots. This one's really here just because it's so beautiful, because bovine TB is not particularly, well, it's not really an emerging infection. Uh, and I put it up here, A, because I love it, B, because actually this is a headline from 2006, which reminds us just how long uh, this particular iteration of the discussion about what we should do about bovine TB has been going on. And it also reminds me to define uh, emerging infections. So they fall into, I would say, roughly four groups. So first of all, more cases of an old infection. So tuberculosis does count as, uh, as emerging because it's re-emerging. And that can be either because control is failing, as in the case of tuberculosis, or because uh, an infectious disease is moving into some part of the world where it didn't exist before. West Nile virus in the United States is a good example of that. So that's the first sort of emerging infectious disease. The second sort is a bit of a cheat, and it's the things that are newly discovered or detected that are the cause of some disease that uh, has been around for ages. And really the best example of that is Helicobacter pylori, the cause of stomach ulcers. Then come the drug-resistant forms, or, or let's say that the new strains in general, of which by far the most important are the drug-resistant forms. I'm not really going to talk much at all today about drug resistance, um, even though it is an enormously important uh, section of the novel, uh, sorry, of, of the emerging infectious diseases. And then the fourth lot are the ones that I would call genuinely new. So your SARS, your HIV, BSE, swine flu, bird flu, and so on. Every month, I get sent uh, a two-sider like this uh, from a team at the Health Protection Agency, headed by Dillis Morgan, uh, which is about infectious disease events in animals and in people, but of public health importance. So if there's no way it could matter for people, if, if something's just going on in the animals, it doesn't get into here. And I thought what I would do is summarise what I've had so far this year, or at least the things I think are most interesting so far this year, um, out of the, I guess, eight I've had, because I've had up to August so, so, so far. So the year started off with some 
Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever in Gujarat, which reminds me that many of these things have fantastic names. By March, we'd had the first write-up of a new human virus so far this year. It was an event that had happened a couple of years ago. The papers were published in March. And that's... Ooh, I haven't asked for a pointer, but I can use this, can't I? Can I? Yes. That's... Can you see that? Yes. So that's this here. So it's a bunya virus. It turns out it's the cause of something that I'm just going to call STFS in China. Uh, between the spring of 2009 and the autumn of 2010, there were about 270 cases, 21 deaths. Um, and it turns out it's a, it's a disease of uh, rural people who work in fields, um, probably tick-borne. So, virus, so, so, so the status has got to is novel virus identified, route of transmission not yet known. Uh, May, no, April, uh, brought us the big measles outbreaks in Europe. Um, very good and disturbing example of uh, failures of control. So what's happening with measles in Europe is, is, is insufficient vaccination. So not enough vaccination to main maintain herd immunity. Uh, and then come May, probably the biggest news story uh, for emerging infections of the year so far, and that was the E. coli outbreak in Germany. Do you remember that one? That was the one that turned out not to be, was it Spanish or Portuguese um, cucumbers? Uh, because it was, in fact, uh, bean sprouts. Uh, and that one uh, was sufficiently different from other strains of, of E. coli that were known to be called new. And, and so it's gone on uh, through the years so far. Um, there was one more I want... Oh yeah, no, in July, we had the year so far's example of a new virus, uh, the causative agent of a known disease. So this one here, called Merkel cell polyomavirus, turns out to be the well-established well causal agent in 80% of cases of something called Merkel cell carcinoma, which is a rare and aggressive skin cancer. So... Not a new disease, but um, a, a, a new virus causing a known disease. And then the last thing I wanted to uh, come to in August, it turns out is not an infectious disease. And that's this thing here, bleeding calf syndrome. In August, some cases of bleeding calf syndrome uh, were reported in New Zealand. Uh, so bleeding calf syndrome is a disease where very young calves, upon being given their first colostrum, uh, develop a, a severe bleeding syndrome and die. Um, and that's been rumbling on in Europe for several years. And I used to sit at DOH on a panel called, well, it was an emerging infectious diseases panel. And we used to look at the cases of this thing uh, that were happening in Europe at that time. And, oh, gosh, this looks horrible. What is this awful thing? And then it became clear that there was at least uh, some sort of association with a new vaccine for bovine viral, uh, sorry, for bovine viral diarrhoea given to the dam. And of course, we all looked up at the ceiling and said, oh God, yeah, blame the vaccine. Well, it turns out actually it is the vaccine. There's now very clearly established temporal and spatial association um, and, a, and an experimental um, demonstration of the cause uh, so that the vaccine is inducing an autoimmune disease in the calves. So the vaccine has now finally been withdrawn. The reason I t tell you that story, which is about calves and nothing to do with people, is that it's a good example of what's going on all the time, which is, I would say, three or four times a year in these papers, there is something peculiar 
and small, and almost always unimportant. Sometimes it's nothing. So as far as we know, the, the unexplained deaths in Chiang Mai in Thailand was nothing. It was just a coincidence. Six young women travelling there happened to all fall ill. Three of them died. There, there's not been able to find out what it was. And there's been no... That, that seems to have been the end of it. So it's often nothing, or it's not infectious, or it is infectious, and it's a bit of a big deal for a while, but then it goes away. I'm going to give you an example of that uh, in, in my case studies in a minute. And, of course, every now and then, it's the start of something new and big. And the problem is uh, detect, knowing the difference between the start of something new and big and one of these pretty common things that looks a bit scary for a while and then just goes away. Right, so let me explain to you what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend most of my time um, talking about case studies from, infectious, uh, from emerging infectious diseases. Many of them are going to come in pairs with a little lesson learned, learned at the end of them. But I am also going to spend some time talking about our research here in Oxford, and I hope that to a certain extent my sort of survey of, I can't remember if it's six or seven infec uh, emerging infections, will help you um, understand why we think what we do is worth doing and interesting. So first of all, we're going to go way, way back to 1485 and the English sweats. Um, the book on the left is by John Keyes. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's the first book ever written uh, all about a single infectious disease. So it's a description um, of this thing called the English sweats. Uh, the great thing about the English sweats is it gave us Henry VIII because it's what killed his older brother, Arthur. It had been around for about 20 years by then. And there were big outbreaks every 10 years or so, of which most were restricted to England. So that's why it was called the English Sweats. One, the, the 1528 one, uh, spread to continental Europe. And the last major outbreak was in uh, 1551. Here's what the symptoms were. So sort of fairly standard, um, well, it looks like fairly standard viral infectious symptoms. Without a rash, with rapid death, clear seasonality, and probably the reason we know about it is it killed rich people as well as poor people. Um, and this thing about there being no parish registers, parish registers didn't start till 1538. So it's only for the very last epidemic, the, the 1551 epidemic, that we, can ha we have a denominator to try and figure out how important they were, these, these, these epidemics. They were important enough to register as clear excess mortality in July and August uh, in the bad years. So they were, they, were, they were pretty big, but they didn't actually, they weren't so big as to cause excess mortality over the whole year. So you have to resolve down to the month to see the excess mortality. Trying to pin a causative agent on the English sweats is sort of a sport. Um, some people say, so here are some of the suggestions. Relapsing fever, hantavirus, maybe dearth and sewage, and best of all, let's blame the French. <laughs> um, of course, very often the way with any novel emerging, well, with any novel disease, particularly infectious ones, um, is to try and, as hard as possible to blame somebody else. And I'm hardly going to give any details at all, but I want to pair the English sweats with SARS because I think they're both of them good examples of things that arise as if from nowhere, especially if you don't have a germ theory of infectious disease, which of course Henry VIII didn't. Um, they arise, they cause a lot of trouble, and then they go away again. And that's what happened with SARS. I mean, SARS didn't go away just all on its own, but it has gone. Um, and that's not something new. You know, that's... a been a part of humanity even way back then when there were not really any particularly big cities. 
So that's my lesson, my first lesson, is that this is not a new phenomenon we're talking about. So for my second pair of case studies, I am going to take you far away to the jungles in the southeast corner of the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in order to talk about HIV. So much, much longer ago than we thought, somebody somewhere in this corner of the world caught HIV from a chimpanzee, probably someone who was hunting a chimpanzee to eat. And we now know that that happened sometime between 1880 and 1920. So what happened was, here in this corner, sorry, so this, this corner of Cameroon, I knew I was getting the name wrong, in this southeast corner of Cameroon, there are still chimpanzees living with the closely related virus, SIV, um, with, that is very closely related to the type M HIV, which causes 98% of infections in, in, in humans. So all that time ago, SIV crosses into humans. We have no idea how, but most probably through hunting. And eventually spreads, probably by traffic along this river, and reaches Kinshasa, and spreads in Kinshasa to the extent that by 1960, when we have two samples, we can see that there was already great diversity in the human infection. So you can tell by comparing the two, the, the sequence of two samples from 1960, that this had been spreading in humans for some time. So that's where that date comes from. It comes from extrapolating backwards from now, through all the contemporary sequences, back to 1960, and then right back to, well, therefore, when did this cross over into humans? Of course, we didn't know anything about all that. So that's the story of the group M HIVs. That's these ones here, by far the most common. But there have been other crossover events. The, the N's and the O's uh, are independent crossovers from chimpanzees to people. And there's a new type, a fourth new type, uh, described a few years ago, uh, whose closest rela relatives are actually in gorillas. So one of the things that's very interesting about HIV and chimpanzees, well, non-human primates and humans, is that this has happened four times and those four crossovers are fairly closely uh, together in time. So they're all around the end of the, of the all, well, they're all around the beginning of the last century, so round about the 1900s. It seems to have stopped happening, which is the thing that's really peculiar. You can sort of see reasons why it might have started then. So it must, must always have gone on. People caught chimpanzees, occasionally they caught HIV, occasionally they caught SIV from a chimpanzee. You can see why back before, say, 1850, that was the end of the story. Uh, you catch it, your wife catches it, maybe your girlfriend catches it, but there's no road, so no one else catches it. Uh, so then you can, and then you can see, uh, with um, better communications, why these four crossovers arose and, and became much bigger problems. But it's hard to see why it stopped happening. I think that raises, uh, that's a, a fascinating open question uh, in, in the story of zoonoses. Is why isn't this still going on? Uh, and, and there are theories we can talk about, but, but I just leave it there as an observation for the moment. So we didn't know anything about HIV until 1981. 
Um, so it was in 1981 when there were cases both um, on the east and the west coast of the United States of an unexplained immunodeficiency syndrome uh, that the disease AIDS was described. The virus was identified in 1984, the first drug AZT licensed in 1987. I know many of you are physicians and so will know much better than I do that in 1995, when the really good drugs became available, the impact was enormous. My colleagues uh, who I work with in, in the medical school here tell very moving stories about the impact of those drugs. So by, 1980, sorry, by 1997, because of very effective antiviral therapy, often called HART for highly active antiretroviral therapy, uh, the death rate had declined very substantially in wealthy countries. So that's sort of the happy part of the story, um, the first happy part of the story. The not so happy part of the story is about HIV, the attempts to make an HIV vaccine. So 2003, eight years ago now, the first trial for an HIV vaccine showed zero efficacy. Uh, that was an antibody-based vaccine. Then comes a bit of good news. In 2004, this thing called PEPFAR was launched. PEPFAR stands for President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And it's, it's the good thing that George W. Bush did. And it's a huge, huge um, aid, uh, aid program to buy antiretroviral drugs for countries that can't afford them themselves. It's still running. Uh, in 2007, another vaccine trial actually had to be stopped. So this was a T-cell-based vaccine called STEP. It was stopped early because there were more HIV infections in the arm of the trial that had the vaccine than in the control arm. And in 2009, there was a more encouraging vaccine trial, so-called RV144. Interestingly, this one elicits both humoral and cellular immunity um, and shows modest efficacy. Now, if I were to tell you that that trial has 8,000 people in each arm and whether, it come, whether the result comes out as significantly protective or not depends on how you classify about five people, um, you would see what modest efficacy means. So, so far, it's not going very well at all. However, yes. Yes. That's millions infected. Well, we're we're going to come on to exactly that. I'm going to show a graph in a minute that shows you new infections, deaths, and living with, because of course that confounds several things. So yes, um, great question coming to it. So here's global prevalence. Uh, we're, we're coming. Let's have a think. Uh, HIV data comes out on a two-year cycle now. So we're sort of a, we're, we're, we're 2009 is is the is the most recent. H global HIV data published is published in this report. Uh, UNAIDS publishes a global report every other year. So here's where we stood at the end of 2009. Um, and actually, if you just stop for a minute and think, the shocking thing about this graph is there are countries, whole countries, where 5% of the adult population are infected with this virus. And there are even some whole countries where 15% of the adult population are infected. But, fortunately, it stopped getting worse so far. So, here's, here's, so the top graph is people living with HIV, starting in 1990, finishing in 2009, starting to settle off. And this stabilisation here is in the face of the fact that many people all over the world, it's not just people in rich countries anymore, are living longer with their HIV because of the drugs. So that's, that's this, deaths due to AIDS, 
are starting to fall off. And so, so this is slowing down, even though people are living longer. And that's reflecting the fact that the numbers of people newly infected each year has peaked. This doesn't mean it's going away, but it means it's stopped getting quite so bad quite so fast. And that's true for most of the world. So on this map, countries that are shaded green or grey have stable or decreasing incidence. So incidence, that's, that's new cases in a year. And that's really happened for two reasons, because of behaviour change and because the drugs are so good. We don't yet have a vaccine. Second part of this pair, yes, please do. Yeah, well, I know. I'm sorry, I would have to go back to the original to find out. Brazil ought to be in and would probably be uh, grey or green. Brazil's been fantastic about, um, about drug use, about condom use, about just being very open about, about what HIV is. But I'm sorry, I can't, I can't answer your question. Um, we're not coloured in either. And actually, it's, so it's not that they don't know. Being not coloured in, in, uh, in this map doesn't mean you as a country don't know. We know perfectly well what's going on in this country, in, in the UK. I don't know why we haven't um, given the data to UNAIDS. Sorry. So the second half of this pair, uh, we don't have to go so far away to look for the cause. Um, if I show you this picture of cows, um, if you know your cows, you will know that that picture is from um, post-BSE, because the cows all have two yellow ear tags. All cows have, two yellow, have, have to have two ear tags now. They all have a passport, and that's because the bad story of BSE taught us that it was a disaster not to know where our cows had been. Because the, the reason we had to kill so many cows for BSE, remember, uh, was that we didn't know which animals had been on the affected farms. So basically we just had to kill whole, whole cohorts of animals. So the first case of BSE was in November 1986. And... If you read the veterinary literature, it's, 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 it's really interesting. There, there are funny little reports uh, before that you, you, they have these sort of things where they talk about what did somebody talk about at you know, the, uh, you know, the Stowe on the Wold meeting of, of, of the, whatever the vets clubs are called. And, so, and, and you'll see quite often reports of some vets saying, well, I saw a cow with something really weird. It looked a bit like copper poisoning, but I, I couldn't figure out what it was, so we shot it, and you know, that was that. Um, it became clear very quickly uh, through, well, by 1988 it was clear uh, that the shared risk on all the farms that had cases of BSE was that they were giving feed uh, that included so-called MBM, meat and bone meal. So the mechanically recovered, uh, well, sorry, not mechanically, so the, basically they were feeding uh, animal feed that had cows in it. It had been boiled, so it wasn't giving them bacterial infections, but it turned out that what was happening was that the recycling of cow meat to make protein to feed to milk cows, who, who need a lot of protein, uh, was passing one of these prion diseases. So BSE is one of the family of transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, which we call prions because that's too much of a mouthful, and they're not destroyed by heating. So you can get rid of the viruses, you can get rid of the bacteria, but you don't get rid of your prions by heating. So what then, at first, again, you can read the reports, they say, oh yeah, it's just some small thing, you know, just a few cases. No evidence this is growing. 
uh, but it did. So by the mid-1990s, there were tens of thousands of cases each year in cattle in the UK, and that was in the face of what was supposed to be a ban on, on feeding um, cows to cows. And it wasn't until 1996 when the human cases were announced and uh, what gets called the real ban was introduced um, that uh, new cases in young cohorts really, really started to fall off. So 1995 was the first human cases. March 1996 was the announcement of those cases. Um, I can remember, it's one of those days I can remember where I was. I had small kids, so I was sort of particularly paying attention. But also, I was living in Paris at the time. I was living in Paris in a flat where the only place where, this was pre-internet radio, the only place where you could actually get um, Radio 4 was in the bathroom. You know, there was some great pipe. It made a good uh, aerial or something. I remember sitting on the bathroom floor listening to the, the news. And, of course, they'd all, uh, I don't, well, you, uh, they were all in Paris, actually. All the people who worked on this stuff were in Paris for a meeting. And they were basically bundled in a car and driven away, told they were not to speak to anybody. Uh, we lived on a street full of food shops, as one does in Paris. And the next morning, you walked down the street and every butcher said, no English meat here. And, of course, quite quickly, um, English, meat was, uh, English beef was banned uh, in Europe. Uh, that was March. That's right. So 21st of March was the announcement. 27th of March uh, was the EC announces a world war worldwide export ban on all British beef. So on the 21st of May, the UK began a policy of non-cooperation with EU partners until the ban was lifted. And, of course, the joke is they didn't notice. <laughs> Fortunately, it turns out that there's a big, there must be an enormous species barrier that stops BSE from infecting people, certainly from making them ill and probably from infecting them at all. Uh, so far this year, there have been two deaths and there are three probable cases still alive with variants CJD. But this has not turned into uh, the, 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 the hideous epidemic amongst our young people uh, that at this stage of things, when the epidemic looked to be rising at least linearly and maybe exponentially, uh, was feared. What do I learn from these? These are just two, of the ex two examples of the absolute straightforward lesson that the new emerging infections come from animals. Well, of course they do. Where else would they come from? But I think the second one is not quite so obvious. When people talk about, well, which novel emerging, which novel diseases are going to be really problematic for us. The things they come up with are the things that spread very well, the things that are extremely virulent, i.e. make you terribly ill or dead if you catch them, and the things for which we have no intervention. And I think there is a fourth one, and that is these things with very long incubation periods are particularly problematic because by the time you notice them, you're already in deep trouble. And that was true for HIV, and that was true for BSE. Fortunately, we were in trouble with the cows, at the stage we found out about BSE, and that may well have given us a helpful warning, which probably did uh, reduce the size of, of the, human, the, pro the problem in humans. Um, on, to, on to swine flu. Um, very briefly, some swine flu. And in a way, the lesson I'm going to learn from swine flu is more about science than biology, but forgive me. This is um, respiratory disease uh, by flu season. Flu season runs more or less like a university academic year. You can see here, we're just coming to the end of the 10-11 flu season. This is 
pretty much up to date this data. And I uh, think that's amazing. So uh, blue, blue on this graph, can I get on that one? No, apparently I can't, okay. Blue on this graph is, is influenza-like illness, uh, so that's the one we're interested in. And look here at how very regular the influenza-like illness is. It always pops up just after Christmas. What do you think that is? <laughs> Except in a pandemic year. So here's the first wave of the 2009 pandemic. Here's the second wave. And then interestingly that year, so let's have a think, that would be the January of 2010, we had remarkably little flu. Uh, and then in January of, this, January of this year, we've had a perfectly reasonable amount, if not to say really quite a lot. That's highlighted in this detailed picture of those same things. It's a bit complicated, this picture. So first of all, here in dark blue is the year 1999-2000, which is sort of the last big epidemic here. So that's old seasonal epidemic flu. Then here in 2008-9, that's our normal 2008 seasonal flu coming at the normal time of year, but tiny. And then here come May, June, July, that's the pandemic first wave, stopping when the kids went stop school, going away over the summer holidays, and coming back. That happened to start into a new season, so that's eight, nine, so now we need pale blue. That's the second pandemic wave. And then look at this, I find this fascinating. Almost nothing in what should have been the flu season of that year. And nothing, 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 nothing. And now we have to click into red and then really quite a substantial amount of influenza the next year. Now then, so here is the first two waves. And this is, this is not quite sure what, well, this is thinking about predicting and is it worth trying to predict. Uh, as you will remember, uh, there was a lot of fuss in the newspapers about it and some of my colleagues, and I, I will stick up for myself, not me, uh, were very fussy and said things like this. It is almost certain, which is a crazy thing to say about influenza because nothing's ever certain with influenza. It is almost certain that even if it does fade away, that was swine flu, in the next few weeks, which it might, we will get a sizable epidemic in the autumn. So that was said uh, in late June. Uh, epidemic grew for a few weeks and then summer holidays came and it went away and then it came back in the autumn but really slowly. I remember at this stage of things being really surprised actually that this was growing so slowly here. Then it picked up a bit and then it peaked very early. And it wasn't until the end of that year that HPA released serology, so blood test data, uh, that showed that lots and lots of people already had immunity. They had antibody immunity to this new strain of flu. Uh, easy to detect because it was really quite different from old strains of flu, uh, that meant that for every case that shows in these figures, which are both a count of actual cases and an estimate of underreporting, there had been more than a dozen people who had seroconverted without even knowing they'd been infected. And we had to change, so, well, actually, I don't lecture on flu anymore, but I used to start my flu lecture for our undergraduates saying, oh, if you've got flu, you know about it. Well, clearly not. A lot of these people had had enough flu uh, to seroconvert and be immune um, without, without knowing about it, which I think is pretty interesting. Is there a question? Yep. Sorry? Yes. Yes. Yes, strongly. So what you find... That is a 
It is, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, both the cases, of course, are incredibly age-biased. So the cases were, the vast majority of the cases were in children and teenagers, but probably why summer holidays had such a huge impact. Uh, and the shift in antibodies is also hugely age-biased. Many, many people, basically an awful lot of people who had been around um, before the previous pandemic were already strongly immune to this. And that, that's why um, it had this strong age bias towards cases and deaths in the young. Um, people who'd been around pre... Sorry, it wasn't the previous epidemic, it was the one before. So, so people who had been around for the old H1N1 uh, were still immune to this, which is fascinating. I mean, from the point of view of making a, a, a more broadly specific flu vaccine, that's fantastically good news in my view. So how do you put these two together, um, the initial growth rates, the summer holidays, and the serological data? Well, that's the sort of thing that a model's quite useful for. Oh, no, well, here we are. Here's a saw about people who make forecasts. Um, a, a model's a useful way for taking rather diverse kinds of data. Um, so we have, what do we have? We have data about the rate of change in the number of cases. We have data about, who's at, about when the school holiday are, is and we have serological data about the rate of seroconversion. So we've got two different things, disease and seroconversion. And we can put those three together into a model that makes perfectly good sense of all this data, so long as, well, we don't assume it, what, the, what falls out of that model is an estimate of for every single case that was detected, there were 19 additional cases, which is an awful lot. That's consistent with the serology. And also that on average, every infection was causing somewhere between one and a two, to about one and a half further infections. But of course, only one in 20 of those secondary cases is going to be symptomatic. And I think the thing to learn from this is particularly with flu, but in infectious diseases in general, short-term prediction is extremely difficult. I mean, I think the modelling fell pretty firmly on its face uh, whenever this was, a year ago, two years ago. A uh, year ago two years ago. Does that mean it's not worth doing? I would say not. And really because of this Beckett quote, which says, try again, fail again, fail better. And I think by making these very quantitative predictions, which then show you just how much you do not understand about this infection, it challenges us generally as scientists to figure out, well, what is it that we didn't understand about that flu that led to those predictions being so very wrong? On we go. Next pair of stories takes us to Hong Kong. Ah, uh, bird flu. Bird flu had actually been known about since the 1960s. It was, uh, sorry, so H5N1 bird flu this is. First isolated from terns in the 1960s, but the first big outbreak was in chickens in Hong Kong in 1997. I'm just going to get the numbers right. And in that outbreak, there were 18 human cases and six deaths. So this is a while back, actually. And in my view, a heroic response from the Hong Kong authorities who had every chicken on Hong Kong Island slaughtered, and that for, their, for the time was the end of it. It seemed to go away. H5N1 went away until 2003-04, and it came back again, was discovered again in chickens, again um, in Eastern Asia. And now it's still with us. So, for example, this year so far, um, there have been, I think about 48 cases 
and you can see about 22 deaths. So that's data up until the end of last week. And most of the, most of the cases and deaths are in Egypt this year. That was true also last year. So uh, bird flu hasn't actually gone away. The reason bird flu is up here as an example is that it's one of those um, animal infections that does cross into humans, but virtually never passes between humans. So the vast, vast majority of people who catch bird flu catch it from a bird, but there are a small number of clusters. So there are, these are the sort of well-established clusters. There are a few others that it's not yet clear they really are clusters. There are a small number of people who caught bird flu who've had no contact with the bird and in many cases have been nursing someone who did themselves have bird flu. And that really, really looks like human-to-human -human transmission. But as you can see, uh, you know, it all fits on one slide with very big writing. Um, so this is something that transmits from animals to humans and either not at all or with very poor efficiency between humans. Uh, and the second case is another one of those. So this one isn't so well known. This is something called Lujovirus. Lujo stands for Lusaka and Johannesburg. But photographs of Lusaka and Johannesburg are really horrible. So instead we have this nice graffiti of rats. Because Lujovirus probably came from an unknown rodent reservoir. We don't actually know where it came from. And it's an interesting story, which at the time was frightening. Uh, this is an epidemic curve, uh, but it doesn't look like a curve because every single blue bar is one person. So this is a story about five people. And the first person, this one here, was, what was she? She was a safari booking clerk who lived and worked in town in Lusaka. And she fell ill uh, with a hemorrhagic fever, and she fell so ill that she was airlifted to Johannesburg, but unfortunately died a couple of days later. But in the three days that she was in hospital in Johannesburg, three other people were infected. So that's these three cases here, case two, three, and four. So she caused three secondary cases, and they all died. And you can imagine at this stage, the uh, South African authorities were really, really worried and started contact tracing and to do them great justice, they also let everybody know. They rang up all their friends in um, ministries of health around the world. Um, so everybody could be worried with them. <laughs> and they found, they found a tertiary case. So they found a woman, uh, I think she was also a nurse. Sorry, these, were, so these two were nurses uh, who had nursed the index case. And this was a ward orderly who had cleaned the room in which she died. Uh, this one was, the ter was a tertiary case who had nursed one of the secondary cases, but they found her just very early in her disease. They actually found her sitting in a, in a hospital waiting room because she was feeling unwell uh, and treated her with antivirals and she recovered. And that was the end of it. Now actually, uh, with, the, with the hemorrhagic fevers, that's uh, not an uncommon picture that you have horrible things happen to healthcare workers, but actually not much transmission in the community. So the thing I think is important about this story is, you know, this was horrid, scary stuff, but there were five cases and only four transmissions. On average, each case caused less than one further case, so it never blew up into a big problem. And I think the lesson that teaches us is that it's not really the species barrier that's the important threshold. What really matters is once this thing gets into humans, on average, does each person cause more than one further case? Now, I'm running a bit short of time, so I'm going to skip a little bit. 
to here, um, there's something called simian foamy virus that gets uh, into, into zookeepers who look after primates, but never goes anywhere. So there, nothing's, nothing's ever transmitted. We've talked about bird flu, uh, which occasionally transmits person to person, but no, people on average don't cause more than one secondary case, not a problem. I've just told you about Lujo. Again, uh, secondary cases from each primary case, less than one. None of these three cause a big problem, whereas swine flu, uh, which did spread perfectly efficiently between people, uh, certainly did cause problems. So I think that barrier there, between the things that get into people but don't spread efficiently between people, uh, versus the things that get into people and then spread quite efficiently between them, is really the important threshold. And we call that number, we call it, let's think of it as an amplifica amplification number, we call that number R, sometimes we call it R naught, it's called the basic reproductive number, you even hear them talking about it on the radio sometimes. Right, so that brings me to uh, wanting to think about, well, how do pathogens that are new in humans go about adapting to become better pathogens of humans? And that's not an easy thing to study, especially in stuff that's acute, but it turns out that it's something that you can study in HIV infection, partly because HIV adapts very rapidly, um, and partly, of course, because people are infected for a long time and you can quite easily access the virus that's infecting them because it's in their blood. This is a picture, a little movie, of um, a, a, a cytotoxic T lymphocyte, a kind of white blood cell, um, that is here killing a cell that's infected with influenza virus. So the little cell at the bottom is the T cell and the top cell is the infected virus. And what's going on right here at this interface is a very intimate and very specific interaction in which this immune cell is figuring out that this host cell has got proteins in it that should not be there and is secreting enzymes um, that cause this cell to bleb and die. So, of course, if you're the virus that's sitting in this infected host cell, this is very bad for your reproduction. So you're under huge selective pressure to avoid this, this effect. So all viruses are under intense selective pressure from our immune responses. But it turns out that HIV um, is particularly good at evolving to escape from our immune responses, to escape from infected people's immune responses. And actually, this was an effect that was, was discovered here in Oxford by Rodney Phillips. Um, and there are beautiful, beautiful um, descriptive studies of the evolution inside people of this virus. So on the left hand, so each one of these two graphs is data from one person. So this is virus um, evolutionary biology happening inside a person. So the left-hand one is Seth Borrow's data. She's here now, but she was, um, she was at Birmingham, Alabama when she collected this. And what you see is, over time and days along the x-axis there, the proportion of virus inside one person that has evolved so that one bit of that person's immune response can no longer see it. So it goes from zero, um, very early on in infection, to fixation within about 100 days. And then, and that's been known about for... Actually, gosh, I think Rodney's paper is 1987, so we've known about that for about 20 years. More recently, it's become understood that these escape mutants that evolve inside infected people can be passed to other people. So if they're passed to somebody whose immune response is different and doesn't see that bit of that virus, 
having that mutation doesn't do the virus any good anymore. And in some cases, uh, the mutation will be in some handy protein, so the cost of bearing that mutation is revealed, and the mutant viruses go away again. And that's illustrated here in Al Leslie's uh, lovely data. Um, although, look how much longer that takes. Look how very long the timescale there is, and that's a hint that the cost is rather small. So that's all about what's going on inside people. And there are, there's about, there are about three, four dozen studies like that now of individuals. This is similar data, but at a totally different scale. So this is now uh, data from across the world, deposited over the, uh, over the course of about 20 years into sequence databases. Each one of these uh, lines describes changes in the prevalence of escape in a different little bit of HIV protein. So let's talk about this one here. This is taftipsy. Taftipsy um, is a very well-known epitope, so a very well-known little bit of HIV protein that the immune response uh, should be good uh, at recognizing and dealing with um, if, you have a certain, if, if you have a certain blood type. But taftipsy is now starting to be rather mutated in a lot of people. So 20 years ago, about 20% of the sequences in the database have mutations in taftipsy, but now that's gone up to 60% even though only 10% of the population have the right kind of immune response that means they can see that particular protein. And the thing we're working on together, so some of us who are mathematicians and others who are doctors and others who are biologists, and Helen, Anna, John and Rodney are the main collaborators in this project, have been asking ourselves, well, how can we tie together what goes on inside people with what goes on between people but a whole population of people. So here's a cartoon of what's going on. You've got lots of people and they're all different, okay? Hence, they're different colours. One of them gets infected with HIV, uh, and that's not a halo, that's that person driving within host evolution. So that person's HIV evolves to be well adapted to grow in that person. In particular, the data we have is to escape from that person's immunity. But it's then passed to a different person, and when it goes in a different person, particularly this next one, it's got a different immune response, and the selective pressures are different, and so on and so forth. So we want to put together host heterogeneity, so the fact that the people are all different, and at any one to, for any little bit of HIV, actually only a, a fraction, at most 30%, would be able to see that bit. People are different. Clearly this virus evolves within hosts to do well in that host, but then it gets transmitted and has to go off to some other host. So how do we put all of these three together in order to try and understand what's happening across the population as a whole to the diversity of this virus? So our bit of this is we chuck in these equations, which actually our uh, teenage children who are doing A-level maths would understand perfectly well. They're not, unfortunately, you can't just sort of sit down and solve them because they're not linear. Um, and they are, in fact, just a version of um, some well-known equations. That's the bit we do. And then um, our colleagues do the hard bit where they take um, virus from people who've been chronically infected. So this is actually data that comes from a study of about 100 chronically infected, they're mostly Swiss people. And this is really a prevalence graph. So what it's showing is how much escape was there in this virus, depending on whether we looked at it in a person who could make an immune response or in a person who couldn't. So that little bit of virus that we were talking about before called taftipsy is here. 
So what this says is, if you take 100 people and you sequence that bit of their virus, what you will find is that in the nine of them who uh, can see that virus, sorry, that bit of that virus, eight of them will have mutations in just that bit. Whereas in the 91 to whom this virus is invisible, actually still 30% of them will have mutations. So thinking about this picture, fortunately, you're more likely to see mutations in viruses in people whose immune response see that bit. The dots are down in the bottom right-hand corner. That's good. That's what we would have expected. But what's a bit disappointing about this picture is where the dots are. So just to be a bit heuristic about this, if our immune responses were doing a great job and driving evolution really, really hard, the dots, you'd see lots and lots of escaped viruses in people with the immune responses. So the dots would be lined up somewhere on this line. And if those mutations were really bad for the virus, when they got into people whose immune response don't see them, they'd go away again, so the dots would be down here. So what we'd like to have found was loads of dots down in this corner. And that's not what we found. What we found was a lot of dots that don't really care, a lot, a lot of bits of virus that aren't that bothered whether they're in a host with an immune response or not. A few that are far, that, that are basically driven hard in immune hosts and reverting reasonably fast in non-immune hosts. But unfortunately, they're all the ones we knew about already. These are all bits of HIV that are famous for evolving fast. And what I, what I see when I look at this picture is a signal of genuine, generally rather weak immune responses and not very costly escape mutations, which is not great news from the point of view of making a vaccine. Uh, from the point of view of understanding what's going on, this is extraordinarily beautiful data. So what we can do, I didn't want to show you that one. So what we can do is take these two bits of data. So we've got the sequence data from the databases that tells us what's happening around the world. And we've got John, Rodney and Anna's data from 100 Swiss people telling us what's happening in, inside a sample of individual people. And we can put them together with the equations, which that's really what the best job for equations is, is to combine rather disparate kinds of data. And then we can say, well, can we understand why these different bits of virus are evolving at different rates? So we take these three and make a predicted change in escape prevalence. And then we go back to our data and take an observed change, and the answer is yes. So these, this, this is not a fit, okay? This is just a comparison between what we predict from one kind of data and what we observe in a different kind of data. And I would claim that that reasonably good um, agreement between the two uh, is evidence that we understand what's going on with the evolution of this virus, or these bits of this virus. So to finish up, I'm not going to talk about drug resistance, um, even though it's incredibly important. Uh, and instead, we're just going to have a few um, concluding comments. So first of all, why are there so many? Well, above all, the most important reason why there are so many is there are more of us. Um, and uh, we're living at higher density, and we are travelling more and faster. There is also this issue of enroachment, which is what the, the picture I started with, of the people moving into the Amazon. And various kinds of contact and trade, uh, particularly, I would say, uh, contact between livestock and wildlife. And I'm going to actually end by pinning a lot of blame on livestock. And then also evolution, both of drug resistance and adaptation to humans. All these things together are playing a role um, in us seeing so many 
emerging infectious diseases the last 20, 30 years. Are we all doomed? No, definitely not. Definitely not. I think I, I, this is UK male mortality through the last century. I use male mortality because it shows the wartime deaths from infection so much better. The green line is death from infection, or the khaki line. The red line is respiratory death. So the, 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 the peak that they share in 1918 is Spanish flu. Uh, you can see the peak in deaths at the beginning of the first war, at the beginning of the second war, and then you see the introduction of antibiotics. And that, I think, truly extraordinary fading away of deaths from infection. This virtually invisible blip here, I think, must be HIV-AIDS-related deaths arising in the mid-90s, going away when the good drugs became available. And this is all part, and this isn't just the story uh, in wealthy countries. In Chile, over the course of the last century, deaths from infections fell from about half to about a quarter. And this is all part of this incredible story that we're not going to have time to go into about the truly astonishing change in expectation of life that's happened over the last 60 years, to the extent that... In the hour for which we have been talking together, the baby's born... Well, if this were to continue, the baby's born at the end of this hour, the baby's born now, get 12 minutes more expectation of life <laughs> than the baby's born at the beginning, which is just astonishing, isn't it? People, I've heard people give that statistics and say, you've got 12 minutes more, but I'm afraid it's not true. It's not us. <laughs> <laughs> so let me finish with what I think. I'm going to start with the negatives first so I can finish on the positives. The things that worry me about drug resistance above all is, uh, sorry, the things that worry me about emerging infections above all is drug resistance. But feeding into that are population growth. Urbanisation, I think, is funny and should probably sit in the middle of, of this balance because it's, it's good as well as bad. Rapid travel and, I'm afraid, livestock farming. It's not just more people, but more people who want to eat meat. But in order to end on a positive note, I think there's very uh, good reasons to be optimistic about better drugs and vaccines. There's no question that economic development is an incredibly important part of uh, this uh, fading away of infectious diseases as a cause of mortality, largely, I would say, through falling birth rates. Um, and although we didn't go into it, the story of SARS is uh, one of both, you know, just a fantastic modern high-tech surveillance and sequencing, which means that we, we, we often know what's troubling us, and good, easy information sharing. Having shared my information with you, I will stop there and happily take questions.